0: Good afternoon and welcome to The Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Ribaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall. Brad runs Bannon Communications Research, a polling, message development, and media firm which helps labor unions, progressive issue groups, and Democratic candidates win public affairs and political campaigns. He's a regular contributor to The Hill.com, and he's also a senior advisor to and contributing editor for Tiller4u.com. That's T-I-L-L-E-R, the number four, Y-O-U.com. It's the social media network for politics. He lectures in political science at Salem State University in Salem, Massachusetts. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Brad Bannon. That's B-R-A-D-B-A-N-N-O-N. Brad, welcome to the show. Always great to have you. Hey,
1: Mark. Always a pleasure to be on with you.
0: Absolutely. So let's get right into it. Always, uh, it seems like just a frantic... Uh, pace of breaking news uh, since gosh it's been a long time since it hasn't been put it that way but um Today I well, want to you
1: know it's basically continued from the campaign there was never any stop, and it's because of the nature of Donald Trump there's always going to be breaking updates uh, probably three times a day for the rest of his term
0: yeah absolutely, especially just with how chaotic and, and unplanned everything he seems to do is it, you know it's just there's no planning that seems to go into much of it, and if there is, he seems to derail it anyway uh, speaking of. Derailments and just you know chaos. Let's talk about uh, the healthcare bill that the Republicans currently have uh, sitting in, I guess you would say, a, a secret uh, sort of committee uh, in the Senate. Um, I wanted to start off with that because I know there's been a lot of attention on the Mueller investigation into Trump, rightfully so, but I also feel, uh, and obviously you know, the breaking news with the uh, shooting of five people in Virginia, including Congressman Scalise, and then the shooting in San Francisco at the UPS store uh, the same day, uh, there's been a lot of other news. But under all that, the uh, Republicans' health care bill has been pushing along, and a lot of people last time seemed caught off guard by... By how fast it was released, you know, with no CBO score and then voted on within 24 hours. So a lot of people obviously uh, very concerned about that. So I want to start off with that today. And I want to start off with uh, a couple of articles that I found useful that some people aren't uh, aware of or, or haven't gotten enough attention. I think, you know, like we talked about, if the news wasn't as busy it is as it is now, these would be, I think, leading stories. Um, I want to start off with a story that actually... Um, came out on Wednesday morning uh, from CNN uh, by Dan Merica, Jim Acosta, Lauren Fox, and Phil Mattingly contributing to the story. Um, President Donald Trump told Republican senators lunching at the White House Tuesday that the House-passed health care reform bill he celebrated earlier this year was, quote, mean, a source told CNN. Trump made clear multiple attempts that he was pleased— the Senate negotiations appeared to be moving away from where the House version of the repeal and replace effort ended up, according to three sources familiar with the meeting. Trump told the lawmakers that the House bill didn't go far enough in protecting individuals in the marketplace and appeared to use that as his rationale for why he he has ambiguously called twice for the Senate to, quote, add more money to the bill. The positive comments about the Senate plan tracks with Trump telling reporters during the meeting that the Senate should spend more on the bill to make it, quote, generous, kind, and with heart, end quote. But the comment belies the celebratory Rose Garden ceremony Trump hosted earlier this year when the House passed the bill and the president championed it as, quote, incredibly well crafted. Uh, The lunch which brought together the eclectic group of Republican lawmakers was organized to give the president a chance to check in on the process, not twist arms with the hope of striking a deal, a White House official said. But his call for more funding could make it more difficult to sell the bill to House Republicans who will meet with senators if the bill passes the Senate to reconcile the differences between the two Legislative bodies. Additionally, according to Senate rules, the bill passed through the, the House uh, and then would be Senate has to save $133 billion, the same amount of money as the House bill. That leaves Trump and Senate Republicans with little flexibility on spending. While they can spend more money on certain areas, they still have to hit the $133 billion marker to comply with Senate rules. So, Brad, let's start off with the top of the story. What does it tell us about a president who publicly celebrates a bill that takes away health insurance from 23 million Americans, according to the nonpartisan CBO, and then privately tells senators that the bill is, quote, mean? Well,
1: uh, first of all, uh, when Donald Trump says mean, uh, he thinks yeah. it's a good thing. It's true. Uh, you know, this is... Unlike any other presidency I remember in my lifetime, most presidents, you know, and Ronald Reagan was a good example, try to build coalitions uh, and get different kinds of people together uh, to, uh, you know, uh, to pass legislation. Uh, a good example of that is the uh, tax bill that President Reagan negotiated uh, with uh the uh, House Democratic majority, Uh, Trump does exactly the opposite. Uh, His presidency is focused on one thing, and that is pleasing the Trump base. And there are about 35 or 40 percent of the people in this country uh, that think Donald Trump can do no wrong. And they're looking for mean. That's what they want. They want a mean health care bill. And Trump's playing to them. Uh, And he's decided that's going to be the nature of his uh, political fortune, is playing to his base and mobilizing them.
0: And I think one of the most ironic parts is, you know, most studies have shown that the rural voters that would be most hurt by the repeal and replace with the bill that the Republicans currently have would be the base that still supports Donald Trump. And it's just, it's one of those things. It's like when people always say, how do people vote against their own self-interests, you know, with taxes and things like that. Well, this is, I, I, can't, I have not seen a clearer sign in recent memory than if people support this bill, have their own health care taken away and then can't get access to clinics in rural areas because of the changes that are made to subsidies and who they go to. Um, you know, I want to go also to the secrecy of this health care bill. And there was a really good piece that actually came out uh, late last night uh, on NBC News, and I'm going to just read a little bit from it and get your reaction after the break, Brad. Um, it's by it's by Benji Sarlin and Lee Ann Caldwell of NBC News, and it's entitled, The Senate's health care bill remains shrouded in secrecy. The Senate is closing in on a health care bill that could affect coverage for tens of millions of Americans and overhaul an industry that makes up one-sixth of the economy. Only one problem. Almost no one knows what's in it. Quote, I think it's being written uh, by someone somewhere, but I'm not aware of who or where Senator Rand Paul deadpan to NBC News. Quote, if you get a copy of it, will you send me a copy? In a striking break from how Congress normally crafts legislation, including Obamacare, the Senate is conducting its negotiations behind closed doors. The process began five weeks ago after the House passed its version of health care reform with a small working group of 13 senators rather than the broader committees who usually handle the issue. The opaque process makes it impossible to evaluate whether there are any significant changes coming to health care. There are no hearings with health, health experts, industry leaders, and patient adv- advocacy groups to weigh in where the public can watch their testimony or where Democrats can offer amendments. Quote, and this is Mitch McConnell, we'll, te- we'll let you see the bill when we finally release it, said Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He added that, quote, nobody is hiding the ball here and that people were, quote, free to ask anybody anything. Free to ask, but answers are another matter. Republican senators are still negotiating over specific pieces of the bill, but they say they're close enough to producing legislation that they could hold a vote within weeks. They have been tight-lipped on the details, leaving Americans with only a trickle of leaked ideas that are often vague or speculative. Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price said in a hearing on Thursday that his staff had provided, quote, technical assistance to senators working on the bill, but that he had not seen any, quote, legislative language himself. Democrats have complained about being shut out, but even some Republican senators have said they've had difficulty getting information about the legislation and wish there were more public opportunities to register concerns. Quote, would I have preferred a more open process? The answer is yes, said Senator Bill Cassidy, a Republican of Louisiana. Senator Bob Corker said that he's complained to leadership about the lack of transparency. "Quote: I would have liked to have seen a public process get buy-in from the public. I've said that in several of our meetings, but that's obviously not what's going to happen. Now, when the bill's complete, the public then will have a chance to view it." Asked if they had seen any legislative text, a Republican aide to a member of to a member of the 13-person Senate working group deadpanned, "Why would they show us any legislation?" The approach is broadly similar to the process that produced the American Health Care Act in the House last month. At that time, leaders released a finished bill and voted on it within 24 hours, so fast that the Congressional Budget Office couldn't estimate its costs and effects for another three weeks. The move was a jarring shift after years of promises from House GOP leaders to slow down major legislation and post all bills online several days before a vote. Democrats are increasingly drawing attention to the lack of transparency, which they've criticized as an effort to rush through legislation before Americans can scrutinize its effects or individual lawmakers can push for changes. Claire McCaskill, a senator, a Democratic senator from Missouri, said, will we have a hearing on the health care proposal? Pressing financial excuse me, Finance Chair Senator Orrin Hatch in a separate hearing last week, and Hatch would not commit to one but invited McCaskill to pass on her ideas. McCaskill responded, we have no idea what's being proposed. On Tuesday, several Democratic members linked the closed process to a change in the Senate's media policy that blocked reporters from filming in the hallways. During the crafting of the Affordable Care Act, Republicans complained about a lack of transparency on the bill that reformed the health care system. Then House Speaker John Boehner gave a fiery floor speech saying just before the House vote on Obamacare, quote, read the damn bill before you vote. But Senate Democrats spent months in 2009 negotiating different versions of a health bill through multiple committees in the House and the Senate. The committees then spent days on markups in which members could offer amendments, and the full Senate held an open debate on the final version for 25 days. After the House passed the Senate bill in March, they made a series of tweaks using the budget reconciliation process, which Republicans are using exclusively to pass their own bill. What's going on here is backwards. John McDonough, a professor of public health at Harvard who was a Democratic aide during the ACA debate, told NBC News, quote, The attempt to keep it in the dark is to make sure that as few Americans as possible know what's in it and know what the implications of it are. Critics see the gambit as a response to the House bill's poor reception after the CBO estimated it would leave 23 million fewer people insured while raising premiums and deductibles for many low-income and older Americans. A Kaiser Health tracking poll in May found 55% of respondents have an unfavorable view of the House bill versus only 31% who view it favorably, and most polls have found a similarly negative reaction. There are some factors that could slow down the Senate. In comparison to the House, the Senate is barred from voting on a bill before a cost and impact estimate is released from the nonpartisan CBO. But if the Senate is to really vote before they leave town for a week on June 30th, a goal that many Republicans hope is still achievable, that leaves little time for the public to see legislation. A CBO score takes 10 to 14 days to produce, and there are only 17 days left before the end of the month. So as soon as we get back from our first break here, we're going to get Brad's take on this secretive process, what he thinks the prospects are of this health care bill, and also what you can do to get your representatives' attention, and also those who don't necessarily represent you in a district directly but obviously have an effect on your life because they are crafting this health care bill we'll be right back with that and more at 8886 leslie that's 888 653 this is mark rimaldi and brad bannon in for leslie marshall
1: life liberty and the pursuit of truth the leslie marshall show 8886 leslie <laughs>
0: Welcome back to The Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall with you for a little bit more than the next half hour. Before we went to break, I read a detailed piece from NBC News that went over how secretive the process of this Republican health care has been, not only in the House, but also now that it's arrived in the Senate, alarm bells are going off with how secretive the process has been, especially after Republican senators like Lindsey Graham and others uh, seem to balk at the house bill and you know make it sound like that's not how we do things over here you know we're going to do our own bill and then sure enough Mitch McConnell gets a hold of it and he's got in a secret committee of 13 senators and you know there seems to be no information no health care policy experts being talked to even an aide to one of the 13 senators that's in the working group says that they haven't seen any legislation. So um, I just want to get your take, Brad, especially with your experience, you know, in this government and also seeing the way that the Affordable Care Act passed, you know, despite Republicans saying it was rushed. I read that portion that really stuck out like a a sore thumb to me, which was that the the bill that actually ended up passing finally was to open debate for the entire Senate for 25 days. So what's your uh, perception on this secretive process? Well, uh,
1: basically, first of all, there are a number of reasons that McConnell doesn't want anybody to see it, Uh, number one, uh, it's going to be a bad bill uh, that is going to get a lot of flack. And so the less time is exposed to the public and also to the senators, the better off you are, the better chance you have of passing it. Uh, the second re- uh, the second reason is this really the Republicans don't really have a piece of legislation. What this is is a floating crap game. Right now, what's going on is, McConnell is talking to wayward Republican senators to see what they need to have in the bill to vote for it, because the reality is that uh, McConnell right now doesn't have the 50 votes he needs to pass it, plus one with Mike Pence, uh, and uh, he's wheeling and dealing with uh, senators like uh, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and a few others who have Severe, uh, res, uh, re- uh, uh reservations about uh, this bill.
0: Yeah, and you know, Brad, do you think I, I and I, I Leslie always puts you on the spot like this, and I hate to do it, but based on that information, I mean, at, at your your you know present thinking, do you think that McConnell will be able to get enough moderates to cave in order to get to the fifty votes? Yes,
1: uh, some bill will pass the Senate. I don't know what it's going to look like. Mitch McConnell probably doesn't even know what it looks like right now. But a bill will pass. But the real issue is that whatever bill passes in the Senate, to get the votes McConnell needs to pass it, it's going to be a bill that will make the House very unhappy. So, it will, you know, some bill will pass the Senate. I don't know what it's going to look like. But the real key question is, once it passes the Senate, can the House and Senate come up to agree on one piece of legislation to send to the president? And that's the real difficult part. That's where it's going to get hung up, because I think for McConnell to get this bill passed in the Senate, he has to pacify moderate Republicans like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and a couple others, which means he's going to put in thing, uh, things that will make it
0: unacceptable to the House. So you basically have to find something that pleases the likes of, like you said, Murkowski, Collins, Portman, and Heller, but also pleases the uh, the Tea Party or the Freedom Caucus in the House. And So (laughs) when we get back, Brad, I want to talk to you about this is something that you, you understand, I think, better than a lot of others, the inner working process. of once we get to that reconciliation process, how that actually works, you know, these meetings and then they're allowed to basically just, if they just strike some deal, even though if it's different than the legislation, they can just send it to the president. So that's my question for you after the break. I'm sure many other inquiring minds would like to know about that, especially since it seems like that's going to be the next step here. Uh, If you'd like to join in uh, with myself, Mark Ramaldi, or Brad Bannon, you're more than welcome to ask a question about this or anything else uh, in the news today. You're welcome to join us at 888 6 That's 888-653-7543. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Perfect lyrics uh, for the current uh, topic we're talking about. Uh, this is Mark Romaldi along with Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall today. Brad, before we went to break, I was asking you about once, um, as you believe, you know, the Senate passes their version of a health care bill, and then it has to go back to reconciliation, which does that mean the House then has to vote again? Uh,
1: well, yeah, this is how the process works. Uh, once uh, there is a Senate uh, piece of legislation and a House piece of legislation, they the the then the uh, two bills go to a joint committee of House and Senate members, uh, and in that uh, conference where well, they call it a conference committee, uh, the members of the conference committee basically uh, work to reconcile or make. Uh, and come up with one piece of legislation and once they come up with that new piece of legislation it has to go back to the house and back to the senate uh, for a vote
0: all right that's what i was hoping you were going to say <laughs>
1: um yeah this is going to take this is not you know the senate probably is going to pass some bills uh you know probably before, you know sometime during the summer but that's not doesn't solve the problem. The problem is getting the House, the, the conservative firebrands, uh, and the moderate Repub- the uh, House firebrands and the moderate Republicans in the Senate to agree on one piece of legislation. And I wouldn't be want to be the one who has to do that because it's nigh impossible.
0: And you have, as you said, you know, you're going to see the CBO come out for these bills. They're going to get more and more. Exposure and it seems like when you have a bad bill like this, you have more and more groups coming out against them. I mean, I I had never seen so many groups united against the bill in the House, you know, patient advocacy groups, doctors groups, you know, groups that were just all over the healthcare care spectrum uh, opposing this bill. And in addition, like you said, the secrecy of it, you know, you have people going to town halls and challenging their senators and their congressional members on this. And, you know, the, you're getting a lot of kind of like throw your hands up in the air by the people who even are having town halls. Um, one thing I want to publicize, because I think it's a great uh, tool for those who, Feel kind of helpless in this process, especially with how secretive it's been. Um, obviously, people know they can call and uh, email their congressional members, both in the Senate and the House. Uh, but there's a really good uh, toolkit that was made by the Center for American Progress that you can visit. It's one simple website. It's called Trump Care Toolkit. That's trumpcaretoolkit.org. And right now you'll notice if you go to that website, there's a list of all the senators who are going to have an opportunity to vote on a bill uh, coming up here in the Senate. And it's got their phone numbers. Uh, You can tweet a message to them post on their Facebook page all in one little section that has all of the the links right there um and it's really useful because like I was saying to someone and I mentioned earlier even if you know you're not in Mitch McConnell's district or like say a better example Rob Portman or Susan Collins district they're tracking those calls for the people who are to and you know for or against the bill now especially if you are in their district tell them that tell them what your zip code is you know but even if you're not obviously this is going to affect you so I would just Call them every day. There's even there's a couple other uh, really good um, organizations and websites. There's another one called Five Calls. Basically, has you make five calls. You know, like one on your lunch break per week. I think it is. Um, It's really a lot of good, useful tools out there. I do want to go next to a call. Uh, We're joined by Reggie in Georgia, and Reggie, I know you wanted to talk about kind of uh, Trump's motivations, essentially. For uh, replacing Obamacare, especially when he, you know, is saying these things behind closed doors about the bill that passed the House. Reggie, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, happy Friday to you, Marky Mark, and to Brad Brandon as well. Hi, Reggie. How are you guys? Long time no hear from you too, Brad. Uh, yeah, why are these Republicans, in general, and Donald Trump in particular, so psychotically upset, as Leslie would put it, with repealing and replacing Obamacare? With something that we know is not going to work work out in the long run. But it'll work out in the short run, but in the long run, it'll be a, a phenomenal, dismal dismal failure to flop to boot. You know, I think you're right about that. See, that's the problem Trump faces. Uh, in the short run, uh, this might work. Uh, Because this is what Trump and the House Republicans are counting on. They know whatever bill finally gets passed is going to be unpopular. Uh, because at the, you know, my guess is the House bill dropped 23 million Americans off uh, health care, off uh, of their health care insurance under Obamacare. The Senate bill is likely to be just less worse. And in the Senate, they're talking about dropping off only, you know, 16 million people. Uh, and still, it's a disaster either way. Uh, and basically, What Donald Trump is trying to do is he's trying to motivate his base, and he's forgetting about everything else. Because Trump's theory and his political people theory is in an off-year House election, elections are determined by turnout. And they feel, the Trump people feel, if they play to their base and get them out to vote in a low-turnout election, uh, they can save uh, the House majority in Congress. Uh, Now, I'm not saying they're right, but that's what they think. So everything is basically geared to pleasing the 35, 40 percent of Americans who are aren't Trump supporters and basically forget everyone else. Now, in the long run, that's not going to work because that leaves too many people out there uh, who are hostile. But they think they can make it work in the short run, at least through the midterms next year.
0: Brad, thanks for answering that question. Reggie, thanks for calling. Um, I, I want to go to another good friend of the show, Ishmael in Manassas, Virginia. And uh, I, I don't want to steal his thunder, Brad. I want to let him bring this question up because I hadn't honestly thought about this because it's even further down the line, but it did play a big part uh, in the last health care debate. So uh, without giving anything away, Ishmael, welcome to the show. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Thank you. Greeting to you and greeting to Brad. You as well.
1: Okay. Good, excellent. Brad, how you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Good, 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 excellent. Well, you know, since the last time the Supreme Court and Robert Cannon, like, put the rubber stamp on the health care, what role is are they going to play in the new um, um, uh, health care if they decided to, to if they probably decided to bring it out? I mean, can can the Democrat go to a court and challenge and say, hey, you guys already put a rubber stamp on that? It's the law. Can you just touch base a little bit on that? Well, there's a, see, the Obama bill survived two Supreme Court separate Supreme Court challengers. And the reason the Obama bill went, in, went to the Supreme Court twice is it really expanded the boundaries of the power of the federal government. Uh, Under Obamacare, the federal government was doing things that hadn't done before, and a lot of people, Republicans, felt uh, they had exceeded the president's powers under the Constitution. Now, I doubt... The Republican bill will have problems with the Supreme Court because they're reversing the things that Obama did that made it that made it so uh, legally tenuous. Uh, so the republic I don't think they'll have any Supreme Court problems because they're basically going back to what used to be, uh, which the Supreme Court was just happy
0: with. The bad old days, essentially. Yeah,
1: the bad old days.
0: Does that answer your question, Ishmael? Okay, I think maybe we lost Ishmael. But yeah, no, I I think you explained it really well, Brad. And that was kind of my working assumption. But again, you never know with some of these. uh, And and like you said, also, we don't we don't know enough because we only have one half of the beginning process of uh, this entire health care debate with the Republicans. I want to move next while we still have time to uh, the news that broke earlier in the week about Trump being under investigation by uh, special counsel Robert Mueller. Obviously. You know, a lot of people saying this is a game changer and, you know, the Washington Post reporting that um, there's also uh, some some potential investigations that are having to do not just with the, with Comey, but also with Coates, Rogers. And I don't know if it's Leggett or Leggett, but um, that are being talked about in this investigative piece. You also have the Wall Street Journal, um, w- who is reporting that in in another memo, you um, Uh, I don't know if it's, again, sorry, Legit, uh, writes that Trump questioned uh, NSA Director Rogers about the veracity of the intelligence community's judgment that Russia had interfered with the election. So again, behind closed doors, you have Trump questioning what is held as concrete fact by all of our intelligence agencies. And additionally, which is more problematic for him, uh, really what looks like obstructing justice. So uh, what I want to question you about, Brad, is, What's the end game if Mueller determines that Trump did obstruct justice? And, and I want to give you my working assumption here, and you tell me if I'm if I'm incorrect because there's a lot of moving parts. But essentially, my understanding is he makes a recommendation to uh, Rosenstein, or Rosenstein, or it may actually be Associate Attorney General Rachel Brand if Rosenstein has to recuse himself, which was reported as a potential uh, move in ABC News this week. Then, whether it's Rosenstein or brand, that current, that acting attorney general in the Russia probe makes a recommendation to Congress. Is that correct? Uh,
1: Not exactly. There's a sort of legal process that goes in the middle there. Uh, As special prosecutor, uh, Mueller has the power... Uh, to investigate uh, and indict uh, anybody who's accused of a crime having to do with Russian collusion. So what's likely, if Mueller does decide to go ahead with this thing, the first step uh, is that he is going to indict whoever... He wants to indict uh, in the normal judicial process because the special prosecutor doesn't have any authority over Congress. And basically what would happen is that there are two possibilities if, let's say, he go ahead, goes ahead and indicts the president for obstruction of justice, which is a felony. Uh, Well, first of all, that would create momentum uh, for the impeachment process to begin in Congress. But, B, you might see uh, Mueller, the special prosecutor, uh, and the president work out a deal. Uh, And what I see coming down is a Spiro Agnew-like situation. Uh, Spiro Agnew was Richard Nixon's vice president. Uh, While Trump... Uh, While Agnew was vice president, the U.S. attorney for the state of Maryland uh, conducted an investigation uh, of Agnew and found that Agnew had received kickbacks from contractors when he was governor of Maryland. And so basically what the U.S. attorney did is he went to to Agnew and said, listen, this is the way it's going to be. Uh, I'm just about to file an indictment uh, against you uh, for you know co- you know all sorts of violations of federal law, mostly having to do with taking back kickbacks from contractors. And however, I can make this all go away if you want. You just resign uh, the vice presidency, and this all goes away. And that's essentially what happened with Agnew, uh, is he took the deal because he knew if he didn't take the deal, uh, the U.S. attorney was going to file formal charges, there'd be a trial, and probably he'd get convicted. Uh, and that's what I see the process uh, with Robert Mueller ending is he, he has the power to indict, and he say, he essentially goes to Trump or whoever or Kushner or any of the others uh, and says basically, hey, listen, I'm just about to indict you for obstruction of justice, uh, which is a felony uh, in the U.S. code, and, but I can make this all go away. All you have to do is resign the presidency. Oh,
0: if that happened, the the money I would pay to see the look on Trump's face, if that actually happened, I I think he could sell that for record amounts. Um, In the last couple of minutes, Brad, I just want to bring up a piece that I found uh, really interesting. By Charles M. Blow of the New York Times. i are just going to read a little bit of it and, get, and let you kind of close out with your thoughts. It, it's in regards to the uh, shooting of Steve Scalise, uh, Representative Steve Scalise this week in Virginia and um, political rhetoric in general. <clears throat> it's called rhetoric and bullets. It's in the New York Times from earlier this week. In 2011, after Representative Gabby Giffords of Arizona was gravely injured and six others were killed by a shooter in Tucson, I was moved to commit an entire column to condemning the left for linking the shooting so closely to political rhetoric. Yes, Republican personalities and officials in the wake of Barack Obama's election had spoken openly about Second Amendment remedies and being armed and dangerous and revolution, but it was not possible to connect the dots between that irresponsible talk and the Tucson shooter." Now here I am again, only this time extending the same condemnation to the right for doing the same after four people, including House Majority Whip Steve Scalise, were shot at an Alexandria, Virginia baseball game, a baseball field where Republican members of Congress were practicing in advance of a charity game. The shooter appears to have had a strong liberal, anti-Trump, anti-Republican view, among other things. He was a volunteer with the Bernie Sanders campaign, but at the time of this writing, authorities had not announced a motive for the shooting. The very real possibility that the shooting was politically motivated was clearly on the minds of many, including Representative Rodney Davis, Republican of Illinois, who was at the baseball field during the shooting. Quote, this could be the first political rhetoric, excuse me, political rhetorical terrorist attack, and that has to stop. Let me be clear, I don't have a problem with viewing these incidents through a political lens. Not to do so is naive and ridiculously self-blinding in a way that avoids reality. As Katie Waldman wrote for Slate last June, things happen for political reasons and have political consequences demand that we scrutinize them through a political lens. Crying politicization is itself politicization, a way to advance whatever slate of politics favors the status quo. Often people invoke policy goals in order to get things done. What's at stake is whether these tragedies should be regarded as Irreducible lightning strikes or problems with potential solutions. What I abhor is ideological exploitation that reduces these acts to a political sport and uses them as weapons to silence political opponents and their rhetoric, rather than viewing them as American tragedies that we can work together to prevent through honest appraisal and courageous action. Every shooting in this country is a tragedy, and they happen with disturbing frequency here. As the Washington Post reported, Wednesday's shooting was the 154th mass shooting so far this year in America. That's 154 mass shootings in just 165 days. Violence, particularly gun violence, is the American fact, the American shame. This country has a violent culture, is full of guns, and our federal lawmakers, mostly Republicans, it must be said because there isn't any real equivalency, are loath to even moderately regulate gun access. Pretending that America's gun violence is a function of collective political rhetoric rather than the nexus of personal mental defect and easy access to weapons is a way of dodging, well, the bullet. So here I must take a stand in defense of rhetoric. While rhetoric should never promote violence, it needn't be timid. I was impressed by the official responses from Washington. Even Trump's response was sober and direct, not marred by his typical lack of tact, not like the way he tried to exploit the Pulse nightclub shooting last year. House Speaker Paul Ryan delivered a stately speech from the House floor, and Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi echoed his sentiments in a noble act of bipartisanship. At the top, the responses were pitch perfect, but the political debate isn't confined to the top. It trickles down into the cesspool of social media, which has grown exponentially since Giffords was shot. At that time, Facebook had only about a third of its current number of users. Twitter had about a fifth of its current users. Instagram was just three months old, and Snapchat didn't exist. On social media, where anonymity provides cover for vitriol, violent threats... Violent threats are a regular feature. When Gabby Giffords wrote on Twitter, my heart is with my former colleagues, their families and staff, and the U.S. Capitol Police, public servants and heroes today and every day, she was met with a sickening number of hateful responses, including one that said, too bad it was not her. It is true that political rhetoric can set a tone that greases the skids for a small number of people who are prone to violence, to act on those impulses. We have just gone through a political cycle where that was on full display, but some rhetoric is necessary and real. I believe Donald Trump and the Republican-led Congress are attempting to do very serious harm to the country and its most vulnerable citizens and I will never stop saying so in the strongest terms I can summon. For many people this isn't an abstract policy debate between partisans. For them these debates about repealing the Affordable Care Act for example are about life and death but that has nothing to do with the promotion of physical violence. It has everything to do with protecting this country from administrative and legislative violence. Brad I just want to get your take on this piece just in the last 30 seconds here.
1: Well it's a good piece and I think uh, he is right. Uh, The Political culture is so polarized and highly charged. Uh, you know, shootings are inevitable. We've had all sorts of political shootings. The one uh, in Alexandria the other day, um, I guess about two years ago, you were half go. This kid in South Carolina, who's a ardent conservative, kills nine uh, members, uh, black members of the church. Uh, it's uh, sadly, it goes with the uh, violent political. Culture. And one other thing, remember last year when he was campaigning for office, Donald Trump said if you've got a problem with Hillary Clinton taking, trying to take away your guns, The supporters of the Second Amendment, well, they have a way
0: of dealing with that. Absolutely, Brad. I'm happy you ended on that point because I thought it was pretty hypocritical to hear his son and people, supporters like Chris Collins, acting like, you know, they were absolutely had no responsibility for rhetoric like that. This has been Mark Rimaldi in for Leslie Marshall. You all have a great weekend. You'll hear from Mark Levine on Monday, and then Leslie will be back on Tuesday. Your toes in the sand. An ice cold drink in your hand Waves lapping on the shore As palm trees sway in the tropical breeze Sound like paradise? This is winter St. Pete Clearwater style With 35 miles of white sand bliss And warm gulf waters Paradise is closer than you think Visit awardwinningbeaches.com To plan your perfect getaway To St. Pete Clearwater Voted the best beach in America By TripAdvisor